Amen. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. After about 45 minutes, I'll call my brother up and he can finish out the couple of hours for us. But since we're talking about missions today, one of my favorite missionaries, someone you may have heard of, his name is William Borden, born in the late 1800s. He was born into a super wealthy family, and uh, at the end of his high school career, his parents paid for a world tour for him. He got to travel the whole world. He had like a chaperone who went with him the whole time. And while he's on tour there, he saw all these people who didn't know the Lord, Uh, people who had no gospel witness in their nation, among their people group, in in their tongue, in their language. And he began to get a burden uh, for for sharing the gospel. Borden, uh, in fact, he, he, he came back, he, was, uh, he, he, he sat under the preaching at Moody Church in Chicago, famous church, heard a lot of good teaching there, and he made a commitment to the Lord, I will go, I will go to the nations, and I will proclaim the gospel. And he uh, set aside his own um, place in, his, in, in the family business, which would have made him exceedingly wealthy. He went to school, went to Yale, finished near the top of his class, natural leader, recognized by all, and then he headed off to seminary. And um, after seminary, he said he wanted to go to actually uh, a people group in East Asia, somewhat well known if you read the news in the past several years, a Muslim people group. Um, they, and, and what he did was he went to Cairo first. He said, I'm going to go to, to Egypt and I want to learn Arabic so that I can minister to these people, these Muslims in their own tongue. And he arrives in Cairo, March 1913, and uh, shortly after arriving, he gets spinal meningitis, and he dies within 19 days. William Whiting Borden at the age of 25. There's a story, probably apocryphal, it's difficult to track down, uh, that he wrote in his Bible, um, even if it's not true, whatever author (laughs) wrote this, it's a helpful summary of his purpose in life. That he wrote no reserves after he made a commitment to Christ. That is no holding back. He was going to give his life not to the things of this world, not to the pursuits of business and profit, but to the purposes of God. No reserves. That he wrote no retreats after the day when he uh, specifically said that he would give his, he, he wanted to pursue missions, he wanted to preach the gospel in foreign lands. No retreats. I will not turn back. I have committed myself, I put my hand to the plow and I won't turn back. And that he wrote no regrets um, shortly after contracting spinal meningitis. That is, despite the fact that he knew his life was coming to an end, the vapor was passing already, he would, he felt no sense of sorrow at the loss that he endured for the name of Christ. It was worth it. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. His short life was dedicated to knowing God and making him known through Christ. He humbled himself and acknowledged God as his greatest treasure in everything that he did. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. And that's the theme of our passage today. James has been talking about humbling 
ourselves before God. Several times in, the, in chapter 4, he's said that. Chapter 4, verse 6, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Over and over, he's coming back to this. In the previous passage, which we looked at at the beginning of this month, the humility he was encouraging the people to was stop speaking evil of each other. Stop judging one another. In our passage today, the humility that he's, he's exhorting the believers to is don't boast about your own plans. Don't be self-confident. Instead, acknowledge that God is in control and you are not. Acknowledge God, acknowledge his control, and humble yourself before him. Let me read this passage. If you have your Bibles, James chapter 4, starting in verse 13. If not, the passage will be up here on the screen behind me. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. Yet, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. James begins with an invitation here. Come now, he says. <laughs> this is an invitation to listen and to learn. Come now. And he identifies, first of all, a subtle pride. He identifies a subtle form of pride, confidence in our own plans. We don't often stop to consider our language at this level. And so James invites the believers to pause for a moment and think carefully. Consider how your language, how our language, reveals the confidence of our own hearts. What do you trust? What are you so sure of that you can just speak without qualification? James identifies how the way that we speak about our future plans reveals a sense of self-confidence. First, he says, confidence in our travel plans. Today or tomorrow, I'll go to this or that town. We all do this, right? Summer's coming up. What are you doing for the summer? Oh, we're going to Tennessee. We're going to visit some friends. And so we confidently talk about the places that we go as if we've already, as if we've already accomplished it. <laughs> travel plans, confidence in our travel plans, certainty about our future plans. Having talked about you know, this travel, then he goes on, he's, he's, uh, he's kind of using this sort of hypothetical businessman, if, he's, if you will. And this, this person says, uh, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this or that town. We'll spend a year there. We'll spend a year there. Certainty about the future. Again, we find the same assumptions of control in our own speech so frequently. What are you doing for college? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to go to this school. Uh, I'm going to spend four years. I'm going to get this degree. <laughs> we are so tempted to do these things. We speak about that multi-year project 
that our group is going to accomplish. We're going to develop a new weapon. It's only going to take us five or six years. Wow. We talk about the outcome of our children's education. Parents, we don't tend to speak about contingencies. We often assume that if we plan it, we can do it. He talks about reliance on financial plans. Again, this hypothetical statement. Uh, we'll go to this or that town. We'll spend a year. We'll do business. My translation says we'll, we'll trade. The word just means do business, whatever your business is, and we'll make a profit. It seems so simple, doesn't it? <laughs> if, you're in, if you're in my generation or younger, this is how we were raised, right? Hey, whatever you, whatever you want to do, you can do it. Whatever, whatever you dream, you can be that. Don't let anybody stop you. Anyone who has seriously considered making money in the stock market has this same sort of kind of lust that drives, drives them on, right? Uh, you know, I, I bought this stock when it's low. I'm just waiting for a quarter two earnings to come out, and then I'll sell it, and, you know, we'll, we'll be well off. That's how we tend to think. Confidence in our travel plans, certainty of our future reliance on our own financial wisdom. All these seem rather innocuous on the surface, right? I think they do. Don't, and so we may ask, what's, what's wrong with planning? <laughs> what does James have against planning? Don't misunderstand him here. He's not one of those people whose, whose personality is just more spontaneous. You know, like he likes to fly by the seat of his pants and he's sort of against planning. That's not the problem here. That's not what James is identifying. The problem isn't planning. The problem is self-confidence. The problem is confidence in our own control. Our plans and the way that we speak about them reveal that we think we hold our own future, that we can control the outcome of all of our decisions our finances, our travel plans, anything we expect to do. And in reality, this is not the case, James says. So he gives them a reality check in verse 14. Reality check. Human, you're not in control. James identifies a couple of problems with speaking confidently about your own future. First, he says, uh, he points out that we can't even foresee what will happen tomorrow. He says, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. <laughs> Uh, that's, that, that is meant to be a leveling statement. We can't foresee what tomorrow will bring. And isn't this just a, an amazing aspect of being human? We know that this is not how things work. And yet, we just assume, we just assume that we will be able to bring, pull off whatever it is that we plan to do. We forget that the very next day is completely beyond our control. Not only that, James is really highlighting something more here. here. He's, he's pointing out that we can't even foresee what tomorrow will bring. Certainly, tomorrow's out of our control, but we can't even pre predict with accuracy what will happen with tomorrow. You don't know what will happen tomorrow, he says, let alone control it. This immediately begins to reveal this problem behind the way that we speak about our plans. It's not the plans, it's misplaced confidence. We don't really know or control what's going to happen. 
So he says, first of all, you, don't, you can't foresee what will happen tomorrow. And secondly, your life is temporary. You, human, are frail. Our bodies are so frail. We tend to forget this because we, we are very thankful for the modern science that we have, modern medicine and the application to kind of rooting out so many things that James and his contemporaries would have been subject to. Typhoid, diphtheria, bubonic plague. We feel like we're the masters of our own fate. But James says, what is your life? You're like a mist that appears for a few moments and then it just disappears into the air. We can think of uh, you know, kind of some of these warm spring mornings or actually surprisingly cold spring mornings, but warm enough that the water vapor rises up. You had a little rain, a little snow, and by noon, it's all gone. Uh, and J- James is actually, this uh, image here is perhaps even more temporary than that. that. It's like the breath that comes out of your nostrils or out of your, out of your mouth on a cold day. You breathe it out and instantly it disappears. Your life will soon pass away, friend. Ecclesiastes, we've got a whole book of the Bible devoted just to this. Listen, if you want wisdom, recognize you will die very soon and almost certainly sooner than you expect. James is driving home this point. You don't know your life. You don't know how or when, but you can be certain that you will face death one day. You will face the Lord. Life is fleeting, and we learn this by experience. You live long enough, you lose loved ones. Or you yourself bereave and are lost. Many of us know that breathtaking feeling of receiving bad news from the doctor that just snaps you back awake again from this sort of sleepy lie that we tend to fall into where we think that we're in control and when that moment comes what will your profits mean then who cares how big your savings account is on the day that you die think about these things when we set our goals on our own future plans and finances we are living for this world temporary things that will pass away very soon human achievements We think, whatever I set my mind to, I can do, but we are badly mistaken. The brevity of our own lives and the fact that we don't even know what tomorrow holds are like a wake-up call to us. The Parenting Adult Children class this morning had a great uh, example of this. Interesting, uh, I don't know where this survey data comes from, but money problems rank Number one is the most common worry or concern parents have about their adult children. What does that say about our hearts, parents? What does it say about your heart if you're thinking, I want my kids to go to a good college. I'm saving up for them. I want my kids to to be stable and have a good family. I'll set a good example for them. I'm concerned that my kids have some sort of finances. I'll leave them an inheritance. What does that say about our hearts? James is calling us, open your heart to the Lord. Be vulnerable before him. Search yourself. What is it that you're setting your hope on? You cannot love, you cannot love God and money. You cannot care most about your own children's finances 
and about their souls. The Apostle John said in his third letter, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. Would that we were all like this. And this is James's point. If you make anything more important in your life or your child's life than seeking the kingdom of heaven, you are badly mistaken. All of this planning that we do towards such things is arrogant boasting, James says in verse 16. Because we act as if we had the power of God to make our plans reality. When in fact we are totally at the mercy of forces outside of our control. And, you know, I'm asking myself this question as I'm pondering this week. Why do we do this? How, how is it that James can write this to first century Christians and it's still true for us today? I think it's because we tend to lose track of the fact that we're not in control because we experience so many days of unbroken success in pulling off our plans. I intended to go to the office and work every day last week, and I did, five for five. And so I experienced a sense of control. Our kids planned to catch the bus and get to school. They did it, five for five, and five for five on the trip home too. When we plan for the next day and accomplish what we intend, we often feel a false sense of control as if our decisions and our initiatives are all it takes to get it done. Don't let your own successes gently lull you into a false sense of control. Brothers and sisters, you're human, you're not in control. While it's true that your plans won't happen if you don't take initiative, so don't hear what he's not saying. <laughs> he's not excusing fatalism. Well, whatever will be, will be. That's not his point here. Don't miss the deeper truth that he is driving at. You're not ultimately in control of the outcomes. Even things as close as tomorrow's plans are beyond you, beyond even your knowledge. James wants to drive home the point that your plans won't happen if God doesn't cause them to come to pass. And that's the next point here. James gives a set of alternative instructions in verse 15. And the instructions, his exhortation, here's where the rubber meets the road, he says, acknowledge God. I want you to acknowledge God. The right way to live is to acknowledge God for who he is and that you are not him. Let it be reflected in your words, he said. So James just gives a real simple, a real simple way to do this. And interestingly, the cure matches the sickness. Sinful words reveal self-confidence in our future plans. And so instead, James tells us that we should use words that acknowledge our humble position and God's control. Acknowledge your own humble position in the way that you speak and God's control. Most notably, James reminds the church to acknowledge that the future, the future is in God's hands. Verse 15, he, he says, instead, you, you ought to speak like this. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What does he mean, if the Lord wills? There are two ways of describing God's will in Scripture. 
Sometimes you'll stumble across these sort of things. We've got his moral will. That is what he tells us to do. These are the the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Don't bear, bear false witness. But we know that those things are not always brought to pass in our world. There's a lot of brokenness and a lot of disobedience to God's moral will. But the Bible calls that his will. Follow God's will. So there's the moral will on one hand, but there's his sovereign will on the other hand. That is, whatever God chooses to happen will happen. He is the king in his own kingdom. Everything that he wants to happen will come to pass. There are no exceptions. So when James teaches Christians to say here, if the Lord wills, he means you should acknowledge Whatever God chooses to happen will happen. This is the way that ancient people always spoke about monarchs. If the king wills, he'll forgive that criminal. If the king wills, he'll raise taxes. (laughs) Whatever the king wants to do, he will make happen. And that's the form of God's will that we're looking at here, God's sovereign will. And James says, you should acknowledge, we should acknowledge that God is a king in control and he does whatever he desires in our world, ultimately. Two things that he tells us to acknowledge here. Acknowledge that your life is in God's hands. You see what he says there? If the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will live. That is, God chooses whether or not you live and when you die. Just as we learned a moment ago that our lives are short, our bodies are frail, they are passing like a vapor. So we should explicitly acknowledge God's control in these, in all of these aspects of our life. The scriptures are very clear. God has a specific plan for everyone's life from the moment of your birth to the moment of your death. And God is not unkind to choose the moment that you pass out of this life and into the next one. We hate death, rightfully so. It is an enemy. It's an intrusion into our world. It's not the way that he intended it. We brought it here, though, not him. So when you think about death, when you think about the fact that God controls your moments all the way up to when he, when he ends your life, remember, he's being generous. Everyone enters life as an insurgent. You have active rebellion in your will when you're born. We are always struggling with him for control. We refuse to acknowledge his ways. We are born sinful, resisting him. It's only God's mercy mercy that gives us life and breath, that he allows us to continue because he wants us to struggle forward. He wants us To find him, he says, he desires that people be reconciled to him. So he sent his son to die for rebels so that we could be reconciled to him, not just as a king, but as our father. Brought into the kingdom, yes, but brought into the family as well, adopted, so that we might know him as a father who loves us. Every breath we take is a mercy from God. From the moment that we are born to the moment that we die. And when he plans our ends for Christians, it's a release. It's a release. 
We go to be with him. And for those who don't acknowledge Jesus, it is only what they've earned. God is not. He's not to be blamed for the death of anyone. He takes no delight in the death of a wicked person, he tells Ezekiel. Even those who totally deserve it, he has no pleasure in their destruction. God's in control of our lives from the moment we start breathing to the moment we stop. So if the Lord wills, we will live, we should say. And secondly, James says, acknowledge that the outcome of every one of your plans is in God's hands. Not merely the, the beginning point and the end point, but everything in between. If the Lord wills, we'll live and we will do this or that. Option A, option B. Every plan you have for your future, no matter how insignificant it seems, is in God's control. If the Lord chooses, we'll have lunch today. It's not what we want to happen, excuse me, it's not what we want to happen that comes to pass, but what God chooses. And we need to keep these things in mind. He's the king. He's in control. James says, acknowledge God's sovereignty in your own language, in your planning, in your discussing. The outcome of every plan, from lunch to retirement, is in God's hands. He controls the outcome. And here's the thing. A failure to admit this is the highest form of boasting. A failure to admit this is the highest form of boasting. That's what he says next. Verses 16 and 17, he gives this like strikingly sober warning. Because again, this is not how we tend to think. Oh, you want me to say something different? Fine, uh, rewind the tape and I'll, I'll, I'll say it different the way that you want me to. No, no, we don't understand. It's not just the words. Words reveal hearts. And here's what this sort of planning our own futures reveals. It reveals a deep self-confidence, which is like boasting before the one who's actually in control. Speaking about our future plans as if we're in control is boasting in the face of God, James James says. In verse 16, he says, When you do this, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Again, this seems... I think it seems like an overstatement. That's how it lands on me at first. It feels like an overstatement until you begin to ponder what he's saying here. So, I can't speak about future plans anymore? <laughs> uh, think of it like this. James is... He's a highly trained doctor, and he has identified a disease whose symptoms seem innocuous in your life. You've overlooked it because it doesn't feel like anything to you. But his diagnosis is extremely serious. Without intervention, the patient will be consumed by the sickness. Speaking confidently about our future plans may feel like a benign symptom to us, but the disease is dangerous, he says, because this way of planning our future reveals that we think we are in control. We think that we stand in the place of God. That's what it reveals. That's why it's problematic and it's boasting that he calls evil. So yes, this is evil because it's boasting. That's the takeaway for us. Now that we know this, he finishes by saying in verse 17, whoever knows the right thing to do, and fails to do it, for that person, it's a sin. It's sin if you continue in this form of boasting. It's sin if you fail to acknowledge God's control over your life. If you continue to act like you're the one in charge, you're the one who can accomplish this or that. 
And this is the heart of the matter. God is God and we are not. To be God means to be in control. It means that you make plans and then you accomplish them. That's how we talk, though. That's how we think about ourselves. We tend to think of ourselves with divine qualities. But we're human. And to be human means that you are under the authority of a great king, the one who guides and directs the outcome of of your life down to the very smallest details. We Americans are used to thinking of kings in terms, uh, in negative terms. <laughs> we think of them uh, as, uh, as authoritarian. We don't like that form of control, but that's not the kind of king that we're dealing with here, and we have to keep that in mind. We have to keep in mind he is a kind father to us as well. His kingship is not brutal. His kingship is not uh, enforced on us with harshness. He is a gentle king, and he befriends anyone who comes to him through his son. That's what the scriptures teach us. God sent his son to end the war, to declare a, a, a ceasefire, freedom from punishment for all who lay down their weapons, for all who stop resisting his demands and follow his son. And if we speak like we're in control, we're continuing to offend. We're continuing this affront against the king who is truly in control, a patient king. Acknowledge that God is God. He's in control and you're not. There is great security in him because he's kind. He chooses the outcome of, of every, every action. He controls the circumstances so that they always work together for good for those who love him. That's his promise in Romans 8. If you're a Christian, you need not fear. He will do good to you. Nothing that happens can ultimately harm you. This doesn't mean you won't suffer. James began his whole letter that way. Count it all joy when you endure various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The one who is the master of the entire chess game is working all things together so that they work out for the good of those who love him. You may suffer, but not ultimately. He will use all the events of your life for good. And so we're taught acknowledge God in our words. And I think he doesn't say this exactly here, but I think he intends for us to pray this as well. Of course, pray this as well. Now, this might run counter to your intuition because it feels like if we're just saying, listen, God's in control, then the question sometimes arises, well, why bother praying at all? It's going to happen, right? <laughs> well, yes, it's going to happen. But two things. Number one, he likes to be asked. He's a father. He's a father first and a king. He wants us to ask him. And secondly, the things that he does are in response to prayer. He promises to listen to us. That's one of the most striking things about the New Testament. The God of the New Testament, the God of the Bible, is not a God like all the others. He's not just some pumped up human. 
big muscles and the ability to do whatever he wants. He's a, he's, he is entirely different because he invites little people into his presence. He invites us into his presence because he made us. He made us to reflect him. So this doesn't mean we shouldn't pray. It means we should pray, number one, because we know that he can do it. And because he asks us to come to him with our requests. And he, he responds to those requests. The things that God does are in response to our prayers. Don't let, this, don't let the, that, that sort of false dichotomy run in your mind. Finally, do we always have to say these exact words? That's a weird one, right? Like, how, how often do you, do you say this when you're making future plans? Do I have to use that formula? First, let me say this. I think we should get in the habit of honoring God with all of our speech down to the so-called smallest parts including acknowledging our frailty and his sovereignty. We should get in the habit of honoring God with our speech by acknowledging our frailty and his sovereignty. At, at the very least, verse 17 teaches that if you act as if you rule your own life, if there's no acknowledgement of God's control over your life, then you are sinning. Your words have meaning. They have meaning before God and they have meaning to others. So, honor God when you speak. Who knows how a Christian brother or sister might be strengthened, in fact, by your acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in your life and what might be the impact on a non-Christian coworker. I mean, I'm just imagining the office situation. Uh, hey, you know, we're going to have this meeting next Thursday, if the Lord wills. I realize it might sound strange, but imagine the impact on that person who has no sense of, of a kind ruler, a kind sovereign in their life. If you say that as one who knows you're a son or daughter of the king, be loved. And when you say, if the Lord wills, it's not some fatalism. It's not some sort of throwing up your hands. It's acknowledging the one who loves me uh, can bring this to pass. And so we plan knowing that we submit all things to him. So yes, humble yourself and honor God with your words, especially by acknowledging that your life and your actions are in the hands of God moment by moment. And secondly, beware of dead ritualism. When our mouths say something that our hearts don't really feel, that's dead ritualism. When we say these repeated phrases, but they don't really have an impact in our own, in our own internal person, we're not really submitted to God, in terms of our future plans, it becomes an empty phrase. And repeating these words like a formula at the end of each sentence where you talk about anything in the future can become dead ritualism. This certainly uh, can creep in, and it's a dangerous temptation uh, for us at times. But Somehow we have to hold these two together. Here's an interesting survey of the New Testament. If you read through the New Testament, there's a bunch of examples of places, both in the book of Acts and in the letters of Paul and Peter, where we see them saying, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, about future plans. So it does seem like uh, they took up this same example. They, they use this same phrase oftentimes. Of course, Jesus himself set the example. When he prayed at the very end of his life, Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if you will, take this cup away from me, but not what I will, but what you will. That if God wills, if you will, Father, 
That's just, that's giving himself up. He makes a request in prayer, and then he entrusts himself to the Lord, if you will, Father. So we do speak like this, and we pray like this, if the Lord wills. Interesting example, though. Romans 15, Paul's talking about his future plans. He's writing to this church in Rome. He's never been there. And he says, when I come to you, I intend to go on to Spain. Romans 15, 24, he says, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. It's interesting. He doesn't use the formula, if God wills. He just says, I hope. So I hope you can see how this way of acknowledging his human frailty, his dependence, and God's control breaks this kind of simplistic, must I use the formula question. No, I don't think you must use the formula, but I know you must acknowledge God in your words. You must acknowledge him in your planning. So using the exact formula is not necessary, but humbling ourselves before God is. And this includes acknowledging him in our words, acknowledging that he's in control and we are not. If you're a Christian, consider your position in relation to the king. You are loved and adopted, brought in. He promises to do good to you. Make a habit of acknowledging him, the one who is in control in all that you say or do, whether you say, if the Lord wills or I hope, etc. Because we know that the one who is in control is good. And if you don't know him, if you don't know whether or not you've been reconciled to God, do this. Turn to him through Jesus. If you don't know anything about Jesus, talk to somebody sitting next to you. Talk to one of the people who will be up here afterwards. We would love to talk with you about that. The promise is this. It's not how good you are. It's not how good you are. God invites rebels like you and me to come home and he's already made a path home for us in Jesus so that we can know the one who's in control of all things. Let me pray for us. Father, we need your help in these things. We tend to be overly literalistic and difficult to get along with. And so we ask questions like, do I have to say those exact words? I pray that you'd free us from that simplistic way of thinking and instead open up to us the great joy of knowing you as the true king, the one who rules all. Help us, Lord, to grow in humility, to humble ourselves before you so that we might know with absolute assurance that you're for us, that you're good, and that you're in control, and that we might honor you in all of our words, in all of our thoughts, in all of our plans. Thank you, Father, for the welcome that you have given to us through Jesus. We acknowledge you in his name. Amen. Amen. As we mentioned, there's a